right. Good morning, everybody. It is good to see you all. It is good to be gathered together. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. We're going to dive into this text. Um, welcome to week seven. We are two weeks away from finishing up First John. So you notice when you did your homework this week that we went partway through chapter five and we will finish up First John next week. And then we have a week in Second John and a week in Third John. So we're moving right along here. Um, but I do want to just point out as we go to dive into chapter five that as we head into this final chapter, we're going to see that John um, begins to do something a little different. He's not going to bring up new themes. Okay, we've already kind of established the main themes of the letter, and there's not necessarily going to be new information, but he's going to begin to revisit the things he's already talked about in his letter in a very, very rapid way. And so he's going to kind of shoot out um, ideas that he's talked about at length um, for many, many, many verses earlier in the letter, and he's going to give them to us in very, very short snippets. So we'll see that as we go through today, that he kind of throws out these things things that seem like they're these big ideas, but he's already talked about them at length. So this is his way of kind of revisiting and wrapping up his letter for us. We're also going to see the idea and this concept of love kind of fade into the background a little bit. And the main thing moving forward is going to be this idea of believing in the testimony of who Jesus is. So we're going to see love kind of fade and this idea of belief come become the most important part of what John is kind of wanting us to grasp as he wraps up 1 John. So just a few things that I want to remind us of, because like I said, we're going to see these things kind of pop back up. As we've gone through 1 John, he has really emphasized the idea of his testimony, right? We talked about how John was an eyewitness to Jesus, and this is going to come up again this week, um, believing in the testimony of who Jesus is. So we've already had John's testimony as an eyewitness, but now we're going to get the testimony of some other people in this section of the text, including that passage about the blood, the water, the spirit, right? That odd passage that you're like, what in the world? Um, so we're going to have other testimonies that we're going to look at today. We've also had this idea of tests, okay? How do we know that we are followers of Jesus? And John gave us three tests that he's also going to revisit today. He gave us this test of righteousness, that we'll know that we are children of God if we obey his commands, right? He gave us the test of love. We will know that we are God's children when we love others the way that Jesus did. And then the final test that we talked about was that test of truth, that we'll know that we are children of God when we acknowledge his son. We acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. So those were the three truths that John talked about. And remember that these weren't truths that, or these, these were not tests that were supposed to like make them wonder whether or not they were believers. This was supposed to give them assurance of their faith. They were, look, John was looking to assure them that as these people who broke away and were teaching things that were contrary to these, tr these three truths, that these believers were supposed to be reminded of the foundations of their faith and the things to which they needed to cling to. So as we move forward, keep those tests in mind because we're going to see them pop up in the text as we go. 
So we're going to jump right in in John chapter 5. I encourage you to open up your Bibles to John, uh, cha- 1 John chapter 5 um, as we go through this and kind of follow along. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 12 today. Um, and as we have in the past, we'll also be looking at John's gospel a little bit because as we've seen, John borrows very, very heavily from his gospel as he is writing. We see lots of parallels between the two. You are also welcome to follow along in the back of your book if that is easier for you. All right, chapter 5, verse 1, John begins, and he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commands. Okay, two verses here, and we have every single one of those tests present. So let's see if we can identify these three tests in these two verses. So beginning in verse 5, we see our test of truth right away. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's our test of truth. How do we know that we believe in God? If we believe that Jesus is the Christ, right? So that is our first test. Then in the last, the next part of verse, five, verse 1, we see everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. What test is that? That's the test of love, right? If we love God, we will love our brother and sister, okay? So we have the test of truth, we have the test of love, and then in verse 2, John says, by this we know that we love the children of God. Here's our test of righteousness, when we love God and obey his commands. So again, we're going to see these things that John spent a long time talking about in his letter, just kind of presented to us very, very quickly. So let's look a little bit at these little tests and make sure that we understand what John is saying here. He begins in verse 1 with our test of truth and reminds us that if we believe in God, we also need to have belief in his son, Jesus Christ. And this idea of belief, I think, is really important to make sure we understand what John is saying here. Because we often talk about belief, like we believe in Santa Claus, we believe in the Easter Bunny, we believe um, in things that we hope for, right? We believe that like the Pirates are going to win the World Series. Like these are hopes that we have, maybe distant hopes in some of the cases. This belief that John is talking about, he's not talking about a hope that we have. He's talking about an assurance of faith. So when he says that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's talking about a certainty, a public declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember, this is what those who broke away from the church were denying. They were saying, they were denying the deity of Christ. And so John is saying, no, we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. And so this is a public declaration that he is talking about. And we have to remember as well John's history. We know that his brother James was the first disciple who was martyred. And so John knows that there is a cost to this declaration, that declaring that Jesus is the Christ is something that could cost your life. And so he's not just talking about hope here. He's talking about a certainty of faith. He continues then in the second part of verse 1, and he gives us that test of love. He says, those who love the Father love whoever has been born of him. 
this is kind of a weird way of saying this phrase that he has talked about again and again. It's a little bit of a reversal. Typically, we've seen it that we say that those who love God will love others, right? That has been the way it's been phrased. And so it's phrased a little differently, but it means the same thing, that we can't say that we love God who we don't see and then claim that we don't love our brother sitting right next to us, right? That we love those who are born in the image of God. And this idea of loving those born of God kind of makes sense if we think about it. If you think about the people that you really love in your life, like think about your friends who are dear to you, you wouldn't look at your friend and say like, well, I love you, but I really don't love your children, right? That's crazy. They're, they're part of that person, right? Those people that you love and that, that you hold dear in your life, those children are people that you love as well, right? Those are the people that you hold dear. And so it would be very unnatural for us to love another person but dislike their offspring. And so John is saying you cannot say that you love God and not love those who have been born of him. He continues then in verse 2 with that test of righteousness that we've looked at. He says, so how will we know that we love the children of God? We'll know by the test of righteousness. We know when we love God and we obey his commandments. Okay, and we're going to get this idea of obeying his commandments like fleshed out for us a little bit more. So let's remind ourselves of what, what the commandments were. Remember we talked about this, that the commandment that we hear over and over again is that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Those are the commandments that Jesus says are the greatest commandments. And so we get this idea that we are commanded to love God, our, our vertical relationship with him, and then we are to love others, which is our horizontal relationship with each other. And we talked a lot in past weeks about how really they are dependent upon each other. If our relationship with God is broken, we can be sure that our relationship with each other is going to be broken as well. And if we have broken relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ, that that is going to impact our relationship with God. So as John begins here, he tells us that we need to obey his commandments. Now, again, the only commandment that he, the, the uh, command to love is not the only commandment he has in mind here. We are supposed to obey, obey all of God's commandments. But if you think about God's commandments, particularly those ten commandments, they can be broken into those two categories, can't they? Those commandments either teach us what it looks like to be in relationship with God, about how to love him, or what it looks like to be in relationship with others, how to love others well. And so we see the command to love God and love others in the commands that God gives us. So continuing on with this idea, John goes in verse 3, and he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So what are the commandments that we are to keep? We're to keep the commandments to love God and love others. And John tells us that they're not burdensome, right? So we've talked about in your homework, you looked at this idea of burdensome a little bit. And I want to make sure we talk through it a little bit too. This idea of burdensome, I think what this text is not saying and how it could be wrongly interpreted is that God's commands are really easy. Okay, that is not what we're talking about here. God's commands are easy. It's also not saying that God's commands are not demanding. It's also not saying that we don't have to strive to keep them. Okay, This is not saying that these commands are suggestions. They are commandments. So they are things that we need to keep. So when, when John is saying that the commands aren't burdensome, he's not telling us that they're not difficult. God's commands are difficult. It is a high 
calling to follow after Jesus. Jesus repeatedly tells his disciples that they are to take up their cross and deny themselves. Following after God and keeping his commands is a difficult thing, but it's not burdensome. You looked in your homework a little bit about this idea of burdensome, and you were kind of taken to the place where you saw that there are things that are burdensome, okay, that sin is burdensome, right? It is heavy. It weighs on you. We also saw that legalism is burdensome as well. And so when we look at this idea that God's commandments aren't burdensome, we need to look at it in that light. How are they not burdensome? Well, when we obey God's commands, we aren't sinning. We are free from the, ba- the, the binds of sin. When we follow God's commands, we are also not called to heap additional things on ourselves. We don't have to follow additional laws other than what God has already called, our, called us to. That's what Jesus fought against with the Pharisees, right? They are calling people to additional laws other than to that to which God had already called us to. And so we see that following God's commands does not mean that we walk in sin, and it does not mean that we practice legalism. So what does this mean? In Matthew chapter 11, um, 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we have this idea that it is the pursuit of Jesus that makes his commands not burdensome. What does Jesus free us from? But he frees us from the power of sin, right? Sin no longer has a hold on us. Jesus also frees us from legalism. We don't have to do extra things. We don't have to earn favor by our own works because we have already earned favor through belief in Jesus. And so as John is telling us that these commands are not burdensome, he's not saying they aren't difficult, but he's saying they're not heavy. They shouldn't weigh you down. You don't have to do this by your own striving, but you can rest in the finished work of Jesus. Yes, we are to be disciplined and follow God's commands. Yes, we are to live in the bounds that God has given us, but they are not burdens for us. And he continues in verse 4 with this idea of following God's commands. And he says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So we saw already in verse 3 that God's commands are difficult, but they're not burdensome. And so we now get this idea that those who follow God's commands, those who obey his commands, have overcome the world. You had to look up this definition of overcome in your homework this week. Um, Maybe you came up with something like to defeat or to get the better of. And so we get this idea that we can overcome the worldly tendencies of sin by obeying God's commands. We see this idea all throughout the Bible where when we obey the commands of God, we are set apart from others, right? God calls us to be holy as he is holy, to be set apart for him. And so what is the worldly things that we are overcoming, This is the worldly desire to satisfy all desires through sinful ways. 
in th the second week, we talked about the idea of the way that the world loves versus the way that we loved. And we saw that the world loved in a very self-centered way, right? That, was, that is our natural inclination as human beings, to satisfy our desire for love in a sinful way through lust, through materialism, through self-glorification. These are all the ways in which we see the world practice love. God, on the other hand, calls us to something different. He calls us to that agape love, that other-focused love, the type of love that doesn't take, but that gives. And so we see this idea that when we obey God's commands, we overcome the powers of the world. The power of the world is the power that entices us and draws us to a self-focused type of desire. But instead, we are now free from our sinful cravings, and we are free to do what? We are free to obey God and to love others. That is what Jesus frees us to do. And so we see that, that we have a victory over the world when we obey God's commands. And then we also see in the end of verse 4 that this victory to overcome the world is also present because of our faith. And he continues in verse 5 and says, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so who enables us to overcome the world? It's our faith in Jesus. And that is displayed through our obedience to God's commands and our love for others. We talked about this uh, verse last week a little bit. John 16, verse 33, John, Jesus says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. How do we overcome the world? We overcome the world by abiding in Jesus. Once again, it is not our power, but the power that comes through being in Christ. John never, never gives us the indication that following after Jesus is going to be easy. That's not what he's saying with this idea that the commands are not burdensome, but they're not burdensome because they're not heavy. They free us up. They allow us to overcome the powers of the world, which is what? Sin and death. And so his commands are not burdensome, but they are difficult. John is going to shift here now as we continue on to verse 6, and we're going to move away from this idea of love into this idea of belief. And what we're going to see kind of play out, it's kind of like a courtroom drama. So like pretend like you're entering into a courtroom with John, okay? And we're going to have three witnesses who are going to come to the stand. We're going to have the spirit, the blood, and water. And what is the thing that is being on trial here? We're talking about here, if you look, maybe your Bible passage has a heading that says the testimony concerning the Son of God. So the person on trial is Jesus Christ. And the question is, is can we believe the testimony of who Jesus Christ is? So that is what is on trial here. And John is going to play out this scene for us of what happens. And so there's going to be a shift here to some legal language. You're going to see the words testify and testimony. And you had to mark those in your text this week. You also had to define them. And maybe you came up with something that, they, that to testify is to give proof that something is true. And that's what we're going to see John attempt to do for us here. He's going to give us proof and remind us of the truth of who Jesus Christ is. So let's go ahead and look at this section beginning in verse 6. John writes, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. 
And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So super clear, right? We should just like move on, no explanation needed. This is odd, this section. So let's look at what John is trying to help us understand here. Again, let's put ourselves in the mind that we are in a courtroom. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, there is a verse there that we often misuse, but it is a verse that says, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am present. And often we use that verse when we're praying, right? And we say, like, Lord, there are two or three of us gathered in your name, and we know that you are with us. But that's actually not the context of that verse. If you look at the whole chapter of Matthew there, Jesus is instructing his disciples in what it looks like to confront a brother in sin. And so Jesus says when you confront a brother in sin, first you should do it privately. You should go up to that brother and confront him. If he does not listen, the next step is to take two or three witnesses with you. Okay? So when you go to bring a charge against a brother... You have two or three witnesses to come with you. And God says, Jesus says, when two or three are gathered in my name, when two or three are attempting to do this, I will be with you. And so he's talking about this idea of bringing a charge against somebody else. And obviously the idea of this is not to just charge someone of guilt, but to bring them back to obedience in Christ. We see a similar idea in Deuteronomy 19.15. Moses writes here, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or wrongdoing. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so John is writing this with this knowledge that, hey, in order to bring a charge against Jesus, and what is the charge that John's trying to bring? That Jesus is the Son of God, and he was fully God and fully human. So in order to say that this is true about Jesus, I need two or three witnesses to take the stand. And who are John's witnesses? The blood, the water, and the spirit, okay? We see this idea of two or three establishing the credibility of something all throughout Scripture. Um, it's in the Garden of Eden when we see Adam and Eve in the garden and we hear that, the, that it was good. How do we know it was good? We, well, we have two witnesses, right? We have Adam and Eve. We see it as well at Jesus' birth. When Jesus is presented to the temple, he is presented, and who do we see but Simeon and Anna, who both testify to the credibility of who Jesus is. They prophesy about him, and they confirm that this is the Messiah. We see this as well with the transfiguration. Okay, Jesus is up on the mountain, and he is up there. And the disciples are supposed to be praying, and they fall asleep, and they wake up. And who do they see but Jesus with two witnesses, Elijah, right, and Moses. And what are they testifying to? That this is the Son of God. And then we also have the witnesses of Peter, James, and John, three witnesses. We see it with Abraham. When Abraham is in his tent and he like comes out and all of a sudden there's like these three visitors and they're kind of mysterious. We don't really know who they are, but we get this idea that they're like three angels who have come to visit Abraham and Sarah. And what do they say to Abraham? But they say, hey, Abraham, remember that promise that God gave you that you were going to have a, a child? That's going to happen in a year. We have three witnesses speaking to the credibility of that promise. It is going to happen. 
And so that is what John is doing for us here. He is saying you can trust the credibility of what I say about who Jesus is because I have other witnesses. I have the spirit, I have the blood, I have the water. So you're probably still thinking, okay, but what is the spirit, the blood, and the water? Let's look at what he is pointing us to here. This idea of water, blood, and spirit is all through the Bible as terms of our salvation. We see it all the way back in Exodus, right, with the Red Sea. When the people were being freed from slavery, what did God do in order to grant them that, that salvation, that freedom? They had to take the blood of a spotless lamb, put it over their door, and then not only that, but when they were trapped by the waters, he parted the waters and they walked through it. And so we see freedom from slavery through blood and water. And then where do they go right after that? But they go to the, mount, the base of Mount Sinai, and we see the Spirit of God descend on the mountain. And so we see water, blood, and Spirit in the story of the Red Sea. We also see it with the tabernacle. At the tabernacle, we talked um, a couple, like last semester, about the building of the tabernacle. And you saw that there was this outer courtyard in the tabernacle. And when a priest was going into the outer, t outer courtyard and they wanted to enter into the temple, there was a series of things that they had to do first. And so the first thing they had to do was they had to slaughter an animal at the altar, right? That was the first piece of furniture they ran across. And so they slaughter that animal, so we see the blood. And then they walk a little further into the courtyard, and there's this basin of water there. And before they can enter into the tabernacle, they have to wash their hands in the water. So we have blood, we have water, and now they are into the tabernacle, and who is there but the Spirit of God, God's manifest presence. And so we have blood, water, and spirit, all of three things. What I think John has in mind particularly when he writes this passage is the testimony that he gives us about Jesus' death. So I want to take us just to John chapter 19, and look a little bit at John's um, testimony or what John describes as Jesus is dying. So this is John chapter 19, and I'm going to look at um, verses 31 through 35 here. And this is what John thinks is really important. Remember, as we look at these Gospels, we have to fixate a little bit on what, why does John record this detail. But this is what John says about Jesus' death. He says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. I want to read verse 35 again. This is John talking about himself. John is saying, he, he gives all these details, and then he says, he who saw it, meaning I, me, John, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth that you might believe. Remember how John is so concerned with them believing his testimony about these things. We see this idea of the same language here in 1 John. 
And so what do we hear at Jesus, see at Jesus' death? What we see, blood and water. And what does the blood and water confirm? It confirms that Jesus is dead, right? It also confirms that he was fully human. When we see the blood and the water flow out of his side, John is saying, I saw that. I watched it. I experienced it. And that blood and that water confirms that this man was fully human. So where does the spirit come into play here? Well, with Jesus' death, we see the ushering in of the kingdom of God, right? This is the beginning of God's kingdom. John, we see that in the gospel of Mark over and over and over again. Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. Well, we see the ushering in of the kingdom of God, and with that starts the church. And what do we see at the start of the church? But on the day of Pentecost, we see the Spirit of God come down, and the Holy Spirit comes into the lives of the believers. And so we have blood, we have water, and we have spirit. And what does the spirit testify to? The spirit testifies to the fact that this man was fully God, right? The spirit is the spirit of truth who always points us back to Jesus. Jesus told us over and over again, it is better for me to leave so that my spirit can come. The spirit testifies to the fact that this man was not just fully man, but he was also fully God. He is born of God. So these three that testify, John says, the water, the blood, and the spirit, they are all in agreement that this man is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And so John wants us to understand that it is not just his testimony here that we should trust, but we need to trust the testimony of the spirit, the water, and the blood. And they all speak in agreement that Jesus is who John says he is. John continues in verse 9, and he tells us not only should we, should we believe the testimony of John, not only should we believe the testimony of the water, the spirit, and the blood, but we should also believe the testimony of God. He continues and says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is a testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And so we see this idea here that do we believe the testimony of man? Or do we believe the testimony of God? And what is the testimony of God? Well, we talked about this last week, that God sent his son to be the savior of the world, right? That is God's testimony. That is what he is saying is true about this person. We looked at the idea that he sent his son to save us from our sins, to be the propitiation from, for our sins. And so John is saying here, which testimony are you going to believe? The testimony of God or the testimony of man? And what is the testimony of man that John is thinking of? He's thinking about the testimony of these antichrists. Those who are speaking messages contrary to Jesus. Contrary to the fact that he was God's son. And so John is saying, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the testimony of man, these antichrists? Or are you going to cling to the testimony that God is telling the truth about who this son is? And then it continues in verse 10 and says, whoever believes in the son of God, whoever believes in Jesus has this testimony in himself. And so what testimony do we have in us but the spirit of truth, right? The Holy Spirit who lives in us also testifies to who Jesus is. It confirms our faith. John continues in verse 11. 
and says, And this is the testimony that God had that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life, and whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So John begins in verse 11 and says, this is a testimony. So again, what has John's testimony that he has emphasized so far? He has emphasized the testimony that he is an eyewitness to Jesus. He has witnessed these things. He has given the testimony that the spirit of God, the water and the blood all testify to who who Jesus is. And also God has told us who his son is. He says, this is a testimony that we have that God gave us eternal life. And so we see what is the fruit of believing this testimony? What is the benefit? It's eternal life. And this life is in his son. We talked a lot um, in past weeks about this idea of eternal life. That eternal life is not just this futuristic thing that we are hoping for, but it is something that we currently have now. It is in Jesus. And so, yes, There is a fullness to this eternal life that we are going to experience someday, but there is also an aspect of eternal life that we enjoy and experience now because we believe in his son. It's very, very similar to the idea of sanctification, right? We believe that right now God is working in us. He changes us to look more like him, but there is a day that we hope for when we're going to look completely like Jesus. We will be glorified as Jesus is glorified. And so there is an already but not yet aspect to the way that God is working in us. And it is the same with eternal life. We experience some of that eternal life now, and we will experience to it to the fullest when we go to be with Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, Even so, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give. And so there's this idea that life is not just in this idea of resurrection from the dead. Life is something that is found in Jesus. And John continues and says, whoever has the Son has life. So what does it look like to have the Son? How do we have Jesus? It's abiding in him, right? We have Jesus when the Holy Spirit dwells in us, when we are part of God's family. In John chapter 15, Jesus gives us that whole parable of the the vine and the branches. And he says, if you want to abide in me, you have to be like a branch that abides in a vine. I am the source of your power. And so John says, whoever has the son, whoever abides in him, by extension has life because Jesus is life. And then the contrast is just as true. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. This is the gospel message right here for us. Oftentimes we think about the gospel and we focus on the idea that the gospel is escape from evil and it's the forgiveness of sin and it's, it's the breaking free from sin. And yes, that is absolutely true. All of that is true about the gospel, but the gospel is also the hope of life, life abundant. Jesus says in John chapter 20, verse 10, he says, I have come that they may have life and may have it in its fullness. This is what Jesus offers to us, not just forgiveness of sin, not just the escape of death, which is all beautiful and true, but also fullness of life. I want to just end by reading to us um, from John chapter 11. I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but you might want to turn there if you have your Bible available, um, because we're going to skim over some of these sections. 
But John chapter 11 is the story of the death of Lazarus. It might be a story that you know fairly well, uh, but it's a story of where Jesus goes and raises Lazarus from the grave. But I want to just draw out a few things for us. In this story, um, Jesus is, is in a different town. He's doing miracles, and he hears that his friend Lazarus that he loves is ill, that he's sick. Um, and Lazarus lives um, in a town called Bethany, which is just a little bit, fur- like a little bit uh, further away from Jerusalem. And we would expect that when Jesus gets this news that he would rush to be with Lazarus, right? That he would perform one of these miracles that he's been so famous for. But instead, Jesus kind of gets the news and he decides to stay for a few more days where he is. And then Jesus says to his disciples after two days, he says, all right, you know, we're going to head back to Jerusalem. And his disciples are like, what in the world? Like, why are we going back to Jerusalem now? And Jesus says that we're going because our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm going to awaken him. And his disciples, kind of confused by his language, say, like, well, why, like, if he's asleep, like, he'll just wake up. Like, what are you talking about? And then Jesus says to him, no, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let's go to him. So we get this idea that there is an idea that Jesus is working on here that has to do with this concept of belief. He is going to show them that this testimony of who he is is true. So Jesus then travels with his disciples to Jerusalem, and when Mary and Martha hear that he is there, these are Lazarus' sisters, they come to Jerusalem to meet him. And they begin to kind of grill Jesus like about why he was not there. And Martha says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would be alive. And she says to him, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha replies in a very interesting way. She says, I know he will on the resurrection day. So Martha has this idea that Jesus is somehow connected to resurrection, right? She gets that. She grasps that. And she says, I understand that. On the resurrection day, my brother's going to rise again. But the way Jesus responds to her is so interesting. Jesus instead says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Notice Jesus doesn't say to her, yeah, that's right, he'll rise again on the resurrection day. Instead, he says, no, I am the resurrection. I am life. He's trying to show Martha that she is still missing something. The story goes on, and Jesus goes with Martha and Mary to the tomb, and there are people that are gathered there, and Jesus kind of goes to the tomb and goes to open it, and Martha stops him because she's very concerned about the smell that's going to come out of this tomb. She says, he's been dead for four days, Lord. And I think this four days is really important for us because what is the Jewish tradition was that the spirit of somebody hovered over that person for three days, So for three days, there was like still this hope that this person would rise again. So we are seeing a situation that is completely hopeless now. It has been four days since he has been dead. But Jesus says to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they take away the stone, and we see Lazarus walk out, right? And Jesus gives this prayer that is so interesting. He says, a father I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you would hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. It is so interesting what Jesus is doing here because when he raises Lazarus from the dead, what's going to happen to Lazarus eventually? He's going to die again, right? This is not a permanent resurrection. But Jesus does something here where he shows us through his power, through the power of resurrection, something so much bigger. The miracle that Jesus invites us to see here is not that he raised a man from the dead who's going to die again. The miracle that he is offering is eternal life. He's saying, no, I'm doing this so that you might believe in who I am, that you might believe in the life that is available to me. We see this all throughout Jesus' miracles. We see with the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9. When, John, when Jesus heals his eyes, he gives him sight, but he also gives him spiritual sight as well to see who he is. As Jesus performs these miracles, as he raises Lazarus from the dead, he's doing something temporary to invite people to a more eternal reality. Jesus says, I am life. Not only can I raise this man from the dead, but I can invite you to life to its fullness now. You don't have to wait until death to experience resurrection, Martha. You can experience it now by believing in who I am. And that's what he offers to us as well. So oftentimes I think we just live our Christian life looking to the future and hoping for the resurrection. And yes, absolutely, we should hope in that. There is a fullness and a joy that we are going to experience as, at the resurrection that we can experience now. But we also have to remember the fullness of life that we are offered right now. It is a fullness of life that allows us to overcome the world. Not someday, but now. And that is what Jesus is inviting us to. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to send you off to small groups, if you would bow your heads. Father, we thank you, Lord, um, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for what John reminds us of over and over and over again in this chapter. He invites us to this life with you that is more abundant than we could ever imagine. We thank you, Lord, that this is an invitation that is open to us right now, that we don't have to wait till death to experience you, that we can experience you in a beautiful way right now. We thank you that through abiding in you, uh, through trusting in you, uh, that we have the power to overcome the sin of the world. We have the power to overcome the things that would pull us away from you. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray your blessing upon us as we go to small groups. I pray, Lord, that our time there um, would just be a beautiful time together, that it would be encouraging, uh, that our time praying for one another would bring you glory. Um, and I pray, Lord, that as we hear from other people and we, we swap ideas with one another, that we would learn and grow from each other and that we would grow to know who you are more clearly. We pray all of us in the name of Jesus.